Hello, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and my guest today is David Thompson, a game designer, possibly a, a war game designer. We'll get into this. Um, and his most recent game that he co-designed is called Resist, and it is a game of the uh, the fight against the Francoist regime after World War II. So it's very on brand for the the anarchism podcast. David, thank you for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is this is great. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about this game? I mean, for people who are not uh, super knowledgeable about the tabletop game scene, for, first of all, I'll say this is a single player game, which are very, uh, these are very common and popular within the community of those of us who play these kinds of games these days. But this may be people's first exposure to a single player tabletop game outside of, you know, they've probably played solitaire but they might not imagine anything beyond that. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, um, solitaire board gaming has exploded in the yeah. last you know, five years, right? Um, it, it was it was starting to gain a little bit of traction. Um, you started, you, you'd see every once in a while, you'd see a solitaire game, but really what you started to see more and more were uh, multiplayer games, like games designed for two or more players that people would start seeing solitaire variants. Um, but really about in the last five years and then certainly COVID, right? It just exploded mm. and into the point now where um, it's a little bit, it's getting to be a little bit uncommon not to see at least a solitaire variant of a play, a multiplayer game, right? And there's a lot of different ways to achieve that. And, you know, we can, we can talk about that if you're interested, but, but certainly in, in this specific case um, from the outset, it was designed to be uh, what I would call like a solo only or solitaire unique or however you want to say it. You can, you can only play this game solitaire. Which actually that bothers me. I want a, I want a multiplayer co-op mode as well, but per, we can, we, we can, I'll let you worry about that. You, you know that um, one thing, not, not to sidetrack us too much, but I, one irony is I do quite a bit of solo game design work. I don't play a lot of solo games though, um, but I love playing solitaire games cooperatively with my kids yes right we sit around and we you know we we talk about we i mean i've got that's what i've got set up on the table behind me is a game called under falling skies which was a great game and uh i've been playing recently with it's a it's a solo online game but i've been playing it with my kids which it's it's great yeah my kids are three and six they're not they're not quite there yet but i'm 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 ready for that for that sort of thing it seemed it seems like a great a great way to go. Um, before I'm, I'm about to get way off track and talk about all sorts of things. So let's just stop and say, tell us about this game, Resist, how it came to be, who you made it with. Yeah, sure. So it has a, it has a little bit of a you know lengthy origin story, right? and it and it goes back to um, there is a Spanish publisher who their the name of the publishing company is Salt and Pepper, and um, the main person responsible for that company, uh, his name is Gonzalo. He so he's a Spanish publisher who's primarily what they've always done is what we call localization. So, so translation of a game. So they would take an English language or whatever uh, language game and they would do the translation and they would publish that primarily for the, you know, usually the Spanish community or any Spanish speaking community. Um, but um, he, he, in addition to being a board game publisher, he has a website where he does a lot of game reviews and he is personally into um, historical games. And so he had played some of my other historical games, really liked them a lot. And so he reached out and said, hey, can you please design a game for me? You can design it on whatever topic you want. I just would like you to design a game, but I want it, I don't, I want like all the 
rights to it. Like I want, I don't want to just be the Spanish translation. I want to do the English language, et cetera, because he wanted to expand from doing just beyond localizations. And um, this is probably a couple of years ago when he first reached out. And at the time, and still now, I'm, I'm very busy. I have a ton. I have a day job that's not board game design, right? So board game design is sort of like my second job slash hobby. And um, and I had a bunch of projects on contract and stuff. And I said, hey, you know, I'd love to. Sounds great, but I'm super busy. And we we every once in a while he'd reach out and say, hey, do you have some time? And finally, that was in in my in my schedule. Um, like a very small window of opportunity popped up and I said, Hey, this, I have a little bit of time. And I reached out to my two main uh, design partners. And so that's Trevor Benjamin, who I've designed uh, a lot of games with in the past five or six years. And then Roger Tankersley, who I've started working, working with more recently, but I know from my, my day job uh, and we're, we've been friends for, for a long time. And so I reached out to them and I said, Hey, you know, this, this publisher, um, sounds like a really good guy he's he's asking us to design his game we have total freedom to design about whatever we want um and in my mind you know i knew he he liked historical topics and it's a spanish publisher so i thought it, it made sense to pay homage to that and so i started brainstorming you know what would be a good topic um with that combination and there are a couple of things that, that came to mind. One is uh, a, a unit in World War II was called La Nueva, and they were a Spanish unit that was integrated with a French unit that was partially, they, they operated in North Africa some, but they were there at the liberation of Paris. And so I said, oh, that's maybe one thing that I'd like to look into. But the other one, and this is what Resist is about, was the Spanish Maquis. And so, you know, when people think of the word Maquis, <laughs> if they're a geek, um, they might think of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Is exactly. that what you're going to say? Yeah, that was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you might think of Star Trek, but but Star Trek, where did Star Trek get Maquis from? So Star Trek got uh, Maquis from the 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 French Maquis, right? So when people think of historically the Maquis, they were French resistance fighters. Um, what most people don't know, even if you do know about them, is that they're in addition to the French Maquis, there was the Spanish Maquis, and so. Um, we could we could have a multi-part podcast series about the Spanish Civil War, and we won't do that. <laughs> oh, I will, I will do that at some point, David, on this <laughs> yeah, podcast. Don't you, worry. You do. Yeah, with this podcast, you have to have quite a bit of time <laughs> set aside for the Spanish Civil War. But um, but for people that don't know, 1936 through 1939, very much a a um, sort of presaging what was to come with World War II. There was the Spanish Civil War, and out of that. Um, the Spaniards that were fighting against France, and this is a massive oversimplification, but the, <laughs> the Spanish, the, the Spanish uh, um, Republicans were fighting against Franco were defeated and they fled, and many of them fled to, to France. And in France, uh, that's where they joined up with the, with the French resistance, and they fought on the side of the Allies. And what they, they thought was, and you can understand why they would think this, hey, if we we are working with the the French Maquis. We're working with the um, the British, you know, special forces. Basically, we'll fight against uh, Germany, and when the Allies have won the day, they'll go help us liberate, you know, our country from from Franco's uh, authoritarian rule. Basically, and that did not happen. <laughs> so they were basically left to themselves after World War II is over to try to go back and liberate Spain, and that's where. It's right after, you know, right as World War II is ending is where this game begins, where uh, the player is taking on the role, essentially, of sort of like the cell organizer 
of a small group of um, Spanish Maquis in their attempt to, to, to push back against Franco's forces. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I, you know, I started this podcast, um, I called it Everyday Anarchism because I really wanted it to be about, you know, mutual aid in our everyday lives. I immediately found out that people wanted a lot more theory. My my background is in is in theory philosophy, so that was easy. And I'm just now turning the podcast more towards history. And uh, I just recorded my first episode about the Paris Commune, and then the other just giant world historical event that is that is looming that has almost not arrived yet on this podcast at all even though this podcast is over a year old is the spanish civil war so i appreciate you just very briefly i mean very briefly giving us the sense of what was what was happening and then i will admit i had no idea i mean of course we knew that some people fled France from Spain to France. I mean, that's that's obvious. Where where else are you going to go? But there, the Spanish Maquis, their very existence, their participation uh, in the in the French resistance or with the French resistance, and then their battle against Franco, a relatively short lived battle against Franco afterwards. This is all new to me, David. Thank you so much for bringing this to to my attention. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it was it was basically new to me i mean i knew the basics of it but uh but going into this there was some research obviously that we had to do um to make sure that we were representing uh the topic with the respect it deserves right uh, one one side aside i will mention though as you talk about uh the paris commune is a good friend of mine his name is fred serval um he has a youtube channel uh, he does a lot of board game reviews but he's also a game designer and last year, I think, published a game called Red Flag Over Paris, which is about the, the Paris Commune. So it's a great two-player game. So, Okay, I'm unfamiliar with this, and uh, I, will, I will get right on that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Oh, before we move, I want to talk a bit about the mechanics, but before we move on from that, let's talk about the art of this game, because it looks, yeah. it looks great. And um, one of the things about the mechanics is you have these characters, these these members of the resistance, and you can use them in such a way that they help sort of in the background and keep their identity secret, or you can reveal them, and, and that makes them, in most cases, stronger and more valuable, but that's the end. They can they, they leave their, your deck, they are no longer in the resistance. And so the cards for your uh, the members of your cell have two images for each member. They're, their their hidden self and their revealed self and they're just such striking images it's just such a pleasure to to flip them over and and contemplate them yeah you know um the artist his name is albert montes and so when you know i, I mentioned that the publisher reached out to me and, and asked about designing a game before we even knew the game that we were going to design albert had already uh, agreed to work with us and uh, he's a Spanish artist. It from, he comes from the comic industry in Spain. Uh, extremely talented. He's he's, I think, won an Eisner, which in the comic book world is essentially like the top, of, mm-hmm. you know, the top level um, that you can reach. Um, his art's amazing, and I knew him from his work on the graphic novel adaptation of Slaughterhouse Five, which is, you know, of <laughs> course. An amazing piece of work. So um, it was a huge honor for me. And I've been super blessed in a many ways uh, with many of the artists I worked on. But of course, it was always a joke when when myself and the two co-designers, Trevor and Roger, we would be, you know, getting together and talking about the game design and stuff. And we're like, 
you know, people are going to buy this game because it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. And they're going to be like, well, the game's not very good, but the, but the art's <laughs> amazing. That was our fear all along, right? <laughs> but but um, no, back to your to your your comment about the the character design. So so to give people a sense of, of what you're talking about, you know, that you sort of have this horizontally, like if you take a normal card and you turn it on its side, so it's sort of a horizontal view, and you've got this one the left side is, as you say, you know, the, the Maquis member is they're they're acting covertly. So you might have something like, you know, the baker, right, in his bakery shop, and he's just going about his day and he's covertly collecting information on the the Francoists or something. Um, but then if he's revealed, quote unquote revealed, what it is, is he's overtly fighting back against against the Francoists, which means that, and it, you know, you can kind of view it in a different couple of different ways. You know, is he being captured? Is he fleeing? Um, in game turns, when you reveal yourself like that, the idea is that you have you have to now flee it from Franco's forces. You can no longer be an active member of the resistance. But, but um, the actual process to get us there was that you know, myself and, and Roger and Trevor would get together and we would talk in generalities, but Roger would go off and he really led a lot of the thematic development of the game. And so he would come up with, you know, the baker, right? He would come up with the sort of the hidden side and the and the revealed side. And then, and this is all generalities, like we all contributed, but, but in the main part, Roger would lead that. And then usually I would take those thematic concepts and I would just develop like the gameplay piece around that. Um, and then Trevor was there to basically turn everything into a good game, to refine it and, and you know, make a make an okay game a good game. But um, but Roger, one of the other things that Roger did is essentially what we would call an art brief, which is to say he would write about a sentence or so to describe that. And we turned all of that over to Albert. And we never said, you know, we said, hey, here's some ideas. Um, you know, feel free to to take this and change it up or whatever. But he essentially was able to, to transform about a sentence description into these amazingly evocative pieces of art mm -hmm. that tell a great story. And the only thing you have to know is, is you know, two pieces of art, the name of the person and their in-game abilities. And somehow that's able to convey this, this amazing story. So, yeah, super, super talented artist. And uh, we're really lucky to have been able to work with them on it. Yeah, one of the projects I'm working on right now, um, so I teach in the English department at UNC Chapel Hill, and we're developing a minor in critical game studies. And I'm working on this concept of, of narrative in tabletop games. There's there's obvious, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons obviously is the is the OG in terms of an, an explicit narrative, but I'm very interested in the way that Euro style games and other games that are less obviously narrative create narratives. And one thing I've been struck with, David, both in Resist, but in your game Undaunted, is the way that you set these things up as, as campaigns. And there's a number of different ways that you can play Resist. I should stop and let you just describe how you play Resist. But before, before I do that, I'll say there's, once you figure out how to play Resist, you have also provided a number of ways to play Resist in a way that lets you simulate a historical narrative which i found you know totally striking and and unusual usually if you're playing a game like dominion or something i suppose you can make a narrative in your head of what your kingdom is like but boy is the player doing a lot of that work you've provided a lot more framework or scaffolding for that narrative but then also lots of room for the the, the player to imagine how they are you know organizing this resistance cell and and what they're doing and how they are fighting Franco's forces. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting challenge, right? Like there's also, as you say, there's all sorts of different ways to approach narrative, right? You can you can have the the least narrative, like super abstract game, like something like Dominion, like you say, where it's, it's you have some mechanisms and some art, but you don't even really know what's going on. And if if you want there to be a narrative, you're work you're asking the player really really hard to build that narrative out, um, or something as as you know a a um, a role playing game, but probably more would be something like a a board game dungeon crawl where you're reading like mm -hmm. a, a a page of text before you go into it, right? Where it's just there's really the, you're not asking the player to do anything. You're providing pretty much the entire narrative to the player. And so I would say that resist, obviously, that's it's somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And hopefully what you're able to do, other than this, the little bit of context that's provided in the, in the rules is provide, like you said, the scaffolding to allow for, I guess, I guess maybe what you call emergent narrative, mm -hmm. right? Where you're, the player doesn't have to struggle to see the story that, you know, you're, you're trying to provide for them. Now, that's not to say the game absolutely functions if a player goes in there and all they do is look at the numbers and read the text. They can play the game. They can ignore all the stuff around them, right? Um, but but hopefully the game allows allows the player to almost subconsciously fill in the blanks there for the narrative, right, and build that story. Yeah, I now want to obviously games thrive on youtube because you can you can see what someone is doing but i just if you could just take a second and explain to people how the game is played i know it's going to be way harder on a podcast than it yeah. would be in a in a youtube video but just so they can get a sense of it sure yeah i mean if if people are listening that have never played a, a like a, a what do we call what we call like either like a hobby board game or a modern day board game or whatever um almost everybody as you said has probably played the game solitaire right so card game you're playing by yourself you're just trying to go through the motions of doing something um i guess at its most basic level resist is kind of like that it is literally a card game that you're playing solitaire um what you do in resist is you there is a deck of 24 maquis members of the maquis you're going to play with 12 of them to start with and there's 12 more that are available to you through the course of the game um and so th that's that's one bit, right? You're, you've got your Maquis that you're going to be using. The goal of the game for them is to go on these missions to try to uh, accomplish whatever the mission itself is and defeat enemies on the missions. Um, and through doing that, you're able to do things like recruit new Maquis. You're able to, um, you know, defeat Franco's forces, et cetera, right? So you'll you'll go on a mission. You'll you'll accomplish it to some degree. Uh, and you'll continue on. Now, one of the things that's very, um, I, I think, I don't know if it's unique, but I, it's certainly unusual about Resist is the base game. So there's, we can talk about the sort of the, the scenarios in the campaign later if we want. But the base game has this premise where you are never going to be stronger than you are at the very beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. You start out with 12 Maquis, and you are going to lose them over time. Right, um, it's it's how you manage them is really the one of the key parts of the game that that runs the full course of the game, and so you're trying to to keep them with you as long as possible. There's this constant pull to want to to what we call what we were talking about reveal them for their stronger power, and so in order to accomplish a mission, you might have to reveal them, but then they now leave your deck, and so your deck becomes weaker because you've now lost them, and so you're going to fight that tension throughout the entire game. 
Well, really what's interesting about the game is you decide when it ends. Now, there are some obvious, there are, there are some, some immediate loss conditions, um, but you kind of control how likely those are to happen to a degree. And so the, the entirety of the game essentially comes down to this almost like one big press your luck. You know, do you want to keep on and, and take on another mission? And you get to decide whether you want to or not based on whether you think you can accomplish it. And at that point, once you've decided, okay, we're not going to we're not going to continue on, the game's over, and how well you've done dictates, you know, did you win? Did you did you take a draw? And one of the very unusual things about this game is, unless you unless you have one of those immediate loss conditions, the worst you can ever do in the game is draw. You could draw with the game, and so that's basically representing that within a resistance cell like the what we're what we're modeling here. They are the, they control their own destiny, right? They they how long are were they willing to hold out? Um, and, but the other thing that the, the game conveys to you is the Maquis never had a chance to liberate France. I mean, liberate Spain from yeah. No, that, never... that, comes, that comes through very clear in the gameplay. <laughs> very clearly, right? So there is no such thing as as quote unquote victory. You can't liberate uh, Spain. So. You know, the, the sense of, of overwhelming odds against you and you're fighting a lost cause, but doing the best you can. Those are the, the emotions that we we're trying to evoke in the game. Yeah, I, I would say that you've, you've done a very good job. I mean, you can you certainly feel the attrition. In my experience, you feel the attrition as as you are playing the game. And, you know, again, a story about anarchist resistance, that tends to be how it goes, right? It, right. it tends to, uh, the anarchists always lose i mean at least so far so far right. they have they have always lost um because there seems to be all you know as soon as the anarchists show up every i mean this is what happens in the french commune the uh the french and the germans are fighting each other and then once the the people rise up it's just like oh wait a second with you know it's time it's time for it's time for bismarck and the french government to team up because if there's anarchists on the scene everyone has to get together to to kill them so precisely as you say like whatever the hope was like oh the americans are gonna are gonna help us against franco because he's a fascist well when it comes time to choose between the fascists and the anarchists the the liberal <laughs> democracies have a tendency to pick the side of the fascists that's that's just how that's just how it goes and of course i'm i have no uh, real deep knowledge of what it's like to be a a, a guerrilla fighter but i imagine that this this captures as much as a as much as a solitaire card game that you can play in 30 minutes captures that sense of of camaraderie and resistance and accomplishment with the the clock ticking and the knowledge that the struggle is noble and also futile which again right. Right. cap captures pretty much every anarchist uprising and project as has as has ever happened it doesn't matter whether it's against liberal democracy nazis fascists stalinists all the anarchist rebellions in the same way pretty right. much right so with that said, I wanted to talk to you just a bit about this this concept of of war gaming um, because it seems to me that this is you know this this is a war game. It's a it's a game about war. We also, um, as you and I have chatted about a little bit, people imagine war game is something that takes you know over two hours long and there's lots of dice and there's miniatures and things like that. And I'm very intrigued that boy this. This game and and your other games like Undaunted sit in this interesting 
space. And I'm wondering how you approach designing a historical game or a game about war when there's a whole framework of wargaming that to a certain extent you're, if, if not avoiding, you're at least modifying and adapting. Yeah. The, yeah, that's a great point. So I think for people, if people don't know um, about wargaming, right, what wargaming is, there are three super broad uses of the term wargame. So we should probably talk about that just a little bit to set yeah, the stage. Right so so um, there's, there's professional wargaming, which is things done by like the Department of Defense, mm -hmm. which is not, it's not a game in the traditional sense. It's more of a simulation. And the, the end state is to not quote unquote win, but it's to simulate some sort of, of um, whatever. You know, you're trying to model something specific. It could be logistics, it could be conflict, it could be whatever. To tr so that for, a, for a, a very specific like learning objective. So that's called wargaming. You would typically call it professional wargaming. Um, then you have the wargaming, what is, which is like miniatures, like little you know, scale miniatures on a tabletop, which is not like boards and cars and stuff like that. It's like free form miniature stuff. And that's called wargaming. And then there is tabletop wargaming, which is like board wargaming, right? So now, and that's really what you're sort of talking about is that these these games resist and, and undaunted, et cetera. They don't fall into what would typically be the historically recognized tabletop wargame or board wargaming. Um, and really that's because, and this is a massive generalization, but when people historically talk about that, they were talking about what are called hex encounter wargames. So these are boards that depict areas that are divided into hexagons. You have um, little uh, cardboard chits that are representing military units moving around on those, et cetera. That's sort of, sort of where the hobby grew up in like the 1960s or so. That's where it developed out of. And so there are groups of people who, if you make a tabletop game with a war theme, will not call that a war game because it doesn't fit that historical concept of what a war game is, right? Um, I don't really get, I mean, it's funny to get, to listen to people get twisted around the, you know, what, what is and isn't a war game. Uh, I don't really get in that debate. Um, some people would say I've never designed a war game, right? There are groups of people who would say that. And I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I don't really care. Um, the, the one thing that I have that has informed my personal sensibilities is I only started designing games in the last uh, 10 years or so, and probably even only in the last six or seven years seriously right as a as a as a sort of a like i said second job hobby kind of thing and so my i'm coming from a world where all of my game design sensibilities were formed by a wide spectrum of different types of games um and i won't you know there's just for people that are, are listening that aren't tabletop gamers there's many many different types of games across the world that have different sensibilities if you go to Japan, there's a there's a a type of game. If you you know there's a thing called Euro games that came out of Germany. Um, so and then of course what we call American style games and all those things have their own sensibilities. And while they're starting to fuse more and more together now, um, they still have their own their own origins. But I kind of grew up around all of those equally. I just happened to be interested in military history as a you know personal interest of mine, and so. When I approach a, uh, a historical topic, I'm not carrying a bunch of baggage and preconceived notions into how to approach that. Um, I'll, I'll I try to approach it, you know, the, whatever model I'm going to use as the basis of the game design, 
uh, with a fresh viewpoint. Of course, I'm coming in with all my biases and all my preconceived notions. It just so happens those are very different than what a lot of the other part of the communities necessarily coming at it from. Yeah, I, I'm really struck that this is, uh, this is my first, it certainly will not be my last podcast episode de dedicated to a game. And it is, this, this is putting us in a strange position, or I, I think it's a strange position or to put you in this place that if someone maybe doesn't even know what Sellers of Catan is, right, and then we're, we're throwing them in the deep end with a, with a yeah. solitaire game like Resist, but for, for those of you who uh, are not aware of this, there has just been an explosion over the past, I mean, 30 years, but especially it seems to me in the past 10 or 15 years of interest in in gaming in, in a way that is in a way that is different. There have always been people who played um, role playing games uh, like Dungeons and Dragons. There's the uh, collectible card game of which Magic the Gathering is the most well-known in gaming circles unless you have kids in which case probably pokemon is yep. uh the most well-known there's very old war gaming traditions that can be very complex and difficult and now um and and the if you go to a modern you know what do they call them friendly local game store you'll you'll see all of these sorts of games there but really things derived from this euro game tradition things that you can play in you know, 30 to 90 minutes, things that don't have to be enormous campaigns, things that theoretically someone new to the game could be pretty good at right away, but also someone could spend, you know, decades in improving their skills at the game. This is just a genre that more or less did not exist 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, if you are, if you are 50 or 60 years old, you grew up in a world in which these things just did not exist. And so if you think that um, you don't like tabletop games because you're not interested in Dungeons and Dragons and you know you don't want to spend five hours painting miniatures, you really might want to check out some of these new things. I certainly have uh, my recommendations, but Resist is just a wonderful, to me, example of so many of these different Exactly as you say, I see all the influences, David, in your design, and it's a game that could could only be made in 2022 or or, or 2021, perhaps. This all of the influences that are happening in this whole new genre of gaming, and it's very exciting to me. And it's very, it seems to me, this is be the next thing that I want to hear from you. It seems to me very collaborative and open and decentralized right now i'm hearing rumblings of 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 corporate synergies and centralization of of gaming companies this is what always happens right mm -hmm. whether it's whether it's gaming or soccer it's this amazing grassroots collaborative thing for a certain amount of time and then eventually the money comes in but i still think we're in a place where this the the games are exciting and an anarchist in the in the everyday sense of people yeah. finding community and playing and cooperating and joining in a grassroots way. Does that, yeah. does that feel right to you still? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, and again, to your point, you know, for one, for one thing, it's all relative, right? So on one side, the, the tabletop gaming. And so what we're really talking about is board games and role-playing games that um, industry or whatever you want to call it, has experienced double digit growth for like the last five to 10 years. So it has ex absolutely exploded. 
And most of that is because of the American market, because it's always been strong in Germany, right? Um, it's always been, you know, Germany and parts of, of the continent, the European continent, it's been, it's been strong. But it's exploded in the U.S., uh, which has driven the industry at large. Um, now, having said that, it's absolutely minuscule compared to, like, the video game industry, right? like everything else is. But um, so it's all relative. But, yeah, it is absolutely exploding. Now, uh, you're exactly right. So big picture. Um, there have in the last few years, there's emerged uh, one specific company that sort of it, it's it's called Asthma Day, and they sort of gobbled up a lot of the little ones um, because they see the 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 growth right now. Asthma Day is the board game sort of facing element of this much larger corporation because they're themselves owned by some mm. I think now Swedish equity firm something something yeah. you know like, but it doesn't matter. The point <laughs> is there is a there has emerged this corporate sort of entity. Uh, as of right now, that hasn't seemed to be that big of a negative impact. They're still allowing all of their um, stu- they have tons of studios um, that are largely o- operating, you know, autonomously by all by all accounts. So that hasn't been too disruptive. But in general, in general, the 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 board game world is an extremely collaborative community. Um, when you go and you talk with publishers and other designers and stuff, I can count on one hand the number of sort of like people who have this sense of um, um, maybe they're standoffish because they're concerned about intellectual property or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, right? Some sort of capitalist concept of I'm not going to share with you because it's better for me to that you just don't see any of that. Now, I think that's a a reflection of the industry itself is in this interesting pivot point where it is it is continuing to grow, but it's still it's still ultimately pretty small. Um, and everybody, everybody that's a game sort of creator, right? So whether you're an artist or a designer or a publisher or whatever, um, it's small enough that we kind of still all know each other. You're like, you know, two or three levels removed from knowing anybody. So I, I, we're, we're at this sort of, you know, I don't want to sound too Pollyanna about it, but this sort of golden age where it's grown big enough to support all of these crazy little projects that we get to work on and, you could have games made about something as niche as a solitaire game about the, you know, Spanish Maquis. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we're still in this extremely collaborative environment. And, and the other thing that's related to that is pretty much everybody in the community is accessible, right? Like if you want to, if you want to design a game and go pitch it to a publisher to be, you, you can do that. You can set up a meeting and go do that and i would challenge you to do that in almost any other industry right mm-hmm. how do you have access to to the people that can make those decisions um but yeah it's absolutely a fantastic community the flip the flip side is right is that you're a successful game designer and also it's not it's not your day job right like like <laughs> yes. presumably one thing that will come from the industry growing and the greatest, the greater corporate control is greater professionalization. And with professionalization comes credentials. I mean, I'm sitting right here. I have my academic credential and we are creating a new credential related to games. So I guess I'm, you know, guilt, guilty as charged, right? And that's, and that's just sort of the, the arc of these things for better or for worse. As you were talking, it sounded almost exactly, David, like the, like the craft beer industry except maybe 10 or 20 years before at precisely the the europeans were doing cool stuff and then the americans grabbed it it took off it was a grassroots thing it exploded it was 
unbelievably collaborative. I mean, people still use the term homebrew to describe, you know, various forms of grassroots design. That's that's where that comes from. Literally, it's the craft beer community. And now, you know, whatever the, I think, Brazilian consortium that ate the Dutch consortium that ate Anheuser-Busch now owns, you know, a huge swath of these formerly grassroots homebrew things and you know when you talk to some of these brewers or at least the people around them they're just like yeah it kind of sucks but also those guys got paid you right. know like yeah. yep and that's and yep. that's just that's that's how it goes and i i for one though have lamented it in the beer scene and will also <laughs> lament it in the uh lamented in the game scene as it as it comes speaking as someone who's not uh who's who, who's not someone who's going to get a 10 million dollar check from anheuser bush or something like that yeah well and and and, and that's probably you know going back to your your point about this is not my day job so so i mean to put it into perspective um over the last four years or, or so i guess um i've designed and, and had published something like i don't know about 15 games, which is a lot. That's pretty prolific. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of those have been commercial, pretty commercially successful, right? Not huge, but pretty, pretty successful. And there's no way, um, maybe if I was a single guy and didn't live in America and lived in a country that had proper health care, uh, I could do it full time, right? Mm -hmm. But like what's sustaining a family and stuff, that's just not possible. Um, but that probably goes back to the sense of community because nobody is really making bank in the board yeah. game industry, right? Like, you know, it's just not, you don't go into it to, to make money, right? And you really do have to come into it with a passion. So the idea that, you know, you wouldn't, the, the community wouldn't be there, it, it's just kind of, they, they go together. Yeah, good. Well, I mean, that's, look, that's uh, observing it somewhat as an outsider, certainly not as a creator. That was, that was the vibe I got. And I'm certainly, I'm certainly glad to hear that it still exists. And I mean, I can, I can tell you, so I'm in Chapel Hill and the, the big local game store near us is a place called Atomic Empire. And man, it is just one of the friendliest and most collaborative spaces. And I still think to this day, as, as academia becomes more professionalized, um, you know, the weirdos, the people who would be described these days as neurodivergent, who who perhaps once upon a time could have found a home in an in an academic department. They they've been sort of weeded out. It's really been quite sad. And there's still a place, you know, where the outcasts are are not outcasts. And for me, that's that's a, a, a round tabletop games and it's still this cool and inclusive space that i that i treasure yeah now that's a that's an interesting that's a whole nother topic about uh not <laughs> in the gaming world and inclusivity and diversity and increasing because um while i would say that the hobby is is generally inclusive right especially this is especially more also on the role-playing game side um it is still very much a in america especially it is still very much a white male dominated yeah. hobby, right? Um, so uh, now trending very much in the positive, right? Very much in the positive, but but that's that's that is a reality of it. Yeah, another. I mean, another way of putting it is, it seems to me that these spaces have not yet reached the kind of. I mean, if you want to think about the traditional way that we're measuring diversity, equity, and inclusion, or whatever. You know, we're not we're not seeing that necessarily in terms of race and gender, 
but in terms of the spirit of inclusion yeah. it's there and i i see it moving quickly yeah um yeah. in in that direction because of the spirit because of the spirit of inclusion that for now still animates it um yeah this i mean we've covered everything i wanted to talk about and and more david is there anything else you would like to, to i mean can people buy resist yet is it, is so, it out yet on shelves yeah, in so america for people, for people that are familiar with the the concept of crowdfunding uh, Resist was on a platform called GameFound, which is it's a sort of an emerging platform um, that's people probably have heard of Kickstarter. It's it's GameFound is a similar platform that was to really support only games. It was on there. It was delivered to backers. Uh, the original English language print run is completely sold out. Okay. But, but there's a new publisher, which is a good problem to have, right? Yeah, it is. There is a is, is a new English language publisher that uh, is picking up the English language rights that'll have the game out in the beginning of 2023. So okay. soon. So it'll be available soon. Um, that The name of the publisher is 25th Century. If people you know, are, are interested in it, you can definitely check out their website and you should be able to, I would, I would assume you could pre-order it now, um, but for sure it'll be available soon. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I will. I'll try and track down that information and put a put a link to it um, in the website. And you know, you and I are gonna have to continue this conversation somewhere down the line, David. If that if that sounds good to you, absolutely. I'd love to continue discussing this. Fantastic. Yeah, and yep, absolutely. Please thank your collaborators as well, um, because this was this was a very cool thing. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank, yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been awesome.